I am your host, Josh Taylor, welcoming you back to another episode of Lighting the Pipes Noir. Last episode, we had Richard Widmark's pickpocket, Skip McCoy, serving himself and his country by foiling a commie spy ring. As a result, he had his record expunged and Gene Peters as a consolation prize. Not too shabby. That was Samuel Fuller's Pickup on South Street, released by Fox in 1953. If you missed out on the hijinks of that episode, please look for it wherever you download your podcasts. With much humility, I can say it's a good crash course on the works of Samuel Fuller. A gateway drug, one might say. Now, speaking of Fuller, in this episode, you'll be introduced to yet another eccentric producer of film noir. But before we get to the meat of this episode, we must leave the confines of South Street and the Big Apple and travel to the opposite coast, to the cradle of film noir, Los Angeles. Because L.A. will be the setting for a tragic love story, a love triangle, really, amidst an armored car robbery. What could possibly go wrong? I am talking about Crisscross. In my opinion, one of the most noirist of noirs, starring Burt Lancaster, Yvonne DiCarlo, and Dan Duryea. It was released in 1949 by Universal Pictures and directed by Robert Siodmak. If there is a pantheon of film noir directors, Siodmak would be up there, in my view, with the likes of John Huston, Billy Wilder, Nicholas Ray, Fritz Lang, etc., he is best known for directing The Killers in 1946, the Hemingway adaptation that introduced audiences to Burt Lancaster and Ava Gardner. The opening diner scene is a chef's kiss of suspense direction. Upon seeing it, I am certain David Cronenberg was paying homage to Siodmak in a similar scene in History of Violence. Crisscross was my first Robert Siodmak film. I have to thank noir scholar extraordinaire Eddie Muller for that recommendation. Not a personal recommendation, of course, but because, as I mentioned him before on this podcast, I read his book, Dark City. He is one of several film scholars that has been fostering a critical reappreciation for Criss Cross, as well as a few other lost gems of noir. Just as well because A, it deserves to be praised, and B, it certainly did not have a great reception when it premiered on January 11th, 1949. About that. It is safe to say noir fatigue was beginning to dog the general population. In his handy-dandy book, Into the Dark, film scholar Mark Vieira has collected blurbs from the talent, the critics, and the theater owners for the vast array of film noir that was produced by Hollywood from 1941 to 1950. Of course, film noir would continue through the 50s and show its face in a postmodern fashion to the present day. But Vieira and I, in this introduction, are focusing on its formative decade, the 1940s. Now, the book was published by Turner Classic Movies, of which Vieira has shown his face, as has Eddie Muller, uh, with his great intros and outros on many of the films, uh, which are probably all of them you'll hear about in these podcasts. Now, Turner Classic Movies also published Muller's Dark City. So there is a connection between the two and a connection between Turner Classic Movies and the growing enthusiasm for film noir over the past 10 years or so. Now, Vieira's book is an excellent survey of the 40s for not just listing of the noirs of that period, but also a historical source for the critical and public reception of noir. It lovingly traces the evolution feature by feature, year by year. For our purposes today, let's turn to the section on Crisscross, where it gives us a capsule review from when it was released. So we have here Thomas M. Pryor of the New York Times, and he says of Crisscross. A tough, mildly exciting melodrama about gangsters and a dame. He goes on to say that Burt Lancaster is good in the role, but only because 
he has been working at the same type of role for some time. Not to mention the film is a quote-unquote suspenseful action picture due to the resourceful directing of Robert Siodmak. Everything about these blurbs from Pryor's review hint at acknowledgement of the quality of the production, but reveal an exhaustion towards its subject matter. Let's add more fuel to this fire with this commentary by a theater owner from what is essentially any town USA. Quote unquote, if you don't have to play this, then skip it. This certainly is not the kind of entertainment for small town theaters. I stop there because the theater owner goes on to spoil the end of the film. And you can tell the theater owner didn't enjoy the film very much as he went out of his way to spoil other theater owners about the ending. What a jerk. I'm kidding, of course. Flipping through Vieira's book and reading the theater owner reactions of some of these films indicate that there was a division with general audiences about noir. One reaction I read on the Maltese Falcon from a theater owner purported that Bogart was miscast. Audiences liked him more as a gangster. I don't think Humphrey Bogart would have been very happy with that since that was definitely a typecast he wanted to get out of and High Sierra and the Maltese Falcon were his exit points thanks to John Huston and Raoul Walsh and uh, everyone involved that got his career going. It's just amazing, though, how times and perceptions change when we look back from the present. Eventually, this sentiment would grow stronger in the years following Criss Cross's release. Already, the communist witch hunts had started in Hollywood, the Red was the new enemy, and there was a substantial portion of filmgoers who were tired and disgusted by the crime films coming out of Hollywood, and many raised their ire so the industry could lean away from noir and focus on more family-oriented fare, such as romantic comedies and musicals or the next big trend, biblical epics. And while McCarthyism did decimate the ranks of the talent that, produce, that participated in the creation of film noir... And the studios did take the hint and deliver product that encapsulated good American values. Many in the industry resisted and noir persisted because of it. So in the same decade, you know, where you have Marilyn Monroe and Doris Day and Audrey Hepburn, you still have in that decade Gloria Graham and Lauren Bacall and even the return of Joan Crawford and Bette Davis. Audience and critics may not have been in the mood for Crisscross and could not see the forest for the trees in terms of its canonical potential, but thanks to people like Eddie Muller and other noir enthusiasts, it has undergone a critical resurgence and reappraisal in the past few years. And that's really the story of Crisscross and other film noir efforts like it. These dark, amoral thrillers made by Hollywood in its golden age originated as a cynical bomb to the darkness of the Second World War, was now alienating a vocal minority of filmgoers post-war with its not-so-subtle depictions of sex and violence and bleak fatalism. The so-called optimism of the 50s was right around the corner, and there existed that notion that the hole that film noir filled for many might now be replaced by something sunnier. Filmgoers returned to escapism while noir pressed on through, a glaring reminder in its stories, in its production, that optimism was an ideal, not the reality. In a previous episode, I discussed how the roots of film noir lie in German expressionism. The use of light and shadow to connote the psyche of the characters through their physical environment was the key to the expressionist filmmakers of the Weimar Republic. Some of these filmmakers would bring their knowledge and talent in regard to this aesthetic to Hollywood. Look no further than the expressionistic style of the early sound horror films of Universal Pictures, for example. Robert Siodmak was one of these filmmakers. He was born in, in August 1910 in Dresden, Germany, the very same city that was leveled by the Allies in the Second World War carpet bombing. 
Siodmak was Jewish. His family originated in Leipzig. He worked as a stage director and as a banker. Through some means, he landed a job as a film editor and scenarist for the producer Curtis Bernhardt in 1925. Soon, he was hired by his cousin, another local producer, Seymour Nebenzal, to create new silent films from stock footage. He became so reliable and efficient in this work that it opened doors for him to produce and direct. His first feature was Mention Am Santag, or People on Sunday, co-directed by Siodmak and Edgar G. Ulmer. It was released in 1929, and the film was co-written by his brother Kurt Siodmak and a relative unknown named Billy Wilder. The same Billy Wilder who would write Nanachka in 1939 and through that success go on to direct Double Indemnity. Sunset Boulevard, Sabrina, The Apartment, films that established him as one of the greatest directors of all time. Among the production staff was the future director of High Noon and A Man for All Seasons, Fred Zinnemann. And then we have Edgar Ulmer, Siodmak's co-director, who would make great turnout for Universal Studios in their classic horror era, and who, desperate for work because he would not play ball with the big four, ended up creaking out low-budget but taut, well-packaged output for Poverty Row on time and within budget. And we were talking about a shooting schedule and budget that was dwarfed by the major studios. Even the B divisions of those studios. And one of these lower-than-B films was the noir cult classic Detour. And for those listening to this podcast, don't worry, Detour is coming. Following People on Sunday, Siodmak directed a couple of crime films for Ufa, the great German film production company that had produced the epics of Murnau and Early Long. His last German film was The Burning Secret. It was a film about adultery and raised the ire of Joseph Goebbels, the infamous Nazi propaganda minister who sought to bring all state media under the Nazi jackboot. Goebbels found the content degenerate, which is amusing since he was notorious for his affairs with actresses when he had full control over the German film industry. What a shocker, a Nazi is a hypocrite. As for Siodmak, he saw his creativity about to be censored and his problematic Jewish background hanging over him like a noose. He packed his bags and left Germany. He arrived in France, where he flourished for six years, working in a variety of genres. Inevitably, the dream came to an end when the Germans crashed his party once again with the invasion of France. With the support of family and friends, he was able to dig his heels into Hollywood after fleeing to the States in 1939. He had to work his way up, however. He played the Hollywood game, directing B-pictures before signing a seven-year contract with Universal. He gained a reputation for salvaging Lost Cause features, cranking out efficiently patched-together B-pictures. But between those Hail Marys, he directed several gems of the noir era. His first noir, The Phantom Lady, was produced by Joan Harrison, an exciting proto-feminist figure of her day. She was the first woman screenwriter to be nominated for an Oscar. That picture was Rebecca, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, of whom she worked with professionally for some time, including co-writing his Rebecca and foreign correspondent. Siodmak and Harrison worked well together. Not surprising, for Siodmak had a reputation for being a team player. Harrison was one of but a few of ambitious female producers who would transcend the restrictions of their gender in the patriarchal paradise and dream factory that was Tinseltown. And if you think Harrison is impressive... Wait till I get to Ida Lupino. But what is the relevance of all this in regard to Crisscross? Well, to answer that, we need a pivotal player in the film noir movement to enter the picture. 
not only was Mark Hellinger instrumental in getting Criss Cross off the ground, but I can think of no better time to introduce Hellinger to the avid listeners of Lighting the Pipes Noir. Hellinger was a New York City newspaper man, akin to Samuel Fuller, who would go on to become a successful producer in the studio era. Born in New York City, March 1903, from an Orthodox Jewish background, Hellinger wrote short stories during his tenure in journalism, as well as a few plays. His writing got him onto the New York Daily News and was assigned the About Town section, where he flourished as a gossip columnist for the theater crowd, establishing himself on the Broadway scene because of it. He wrote sketches for his Sigfield Follies, where he met his future wife model, actress Gladys Glad, at a beauty contest hosted by the Follies. Now, the Follies was a famous, infamous cabaret in New York City. Heavyweights like Louise Brooks, prominent in the silent era, and the legendary Barbara Stanwyck and Joan Crawford got their start there. Moving on, Hellinger did just that. He moved from journalism to his true passion, writing and producing fiction. He saw himself installed in the Warner Brothers bullpen in a producer's position, rubbing elbows with the likes of pre-Maltese Falcon John Huston, Raoul Walsh, and of course, Humphrey Bogart. Assigned to WB's B-Picture unit, it was Hellinger who co-wrote Racket Busters and Common Over Broadway. He came up with a story idea and produced The Roaring Twenties, which led to a more, more producing jobs working with Raoul Walsh. Walsh was an old mainstay who had played gangsters under D.W. Griffith in the silent era, who was now a notable writer and director of gangster pictures. With his patch eye and Hellinger's love for dressing up in a suit and fedora, like the gangsters he brought to life, Hellinger and Walsh, with Bogart as one of their main players, helped immortalize the tough guy swagger at Warner Brothers. He and Walsh produced They Drive by Night, Manpower, and Affectionately Yours, starring Merle Oberyn and a young Rita Hayworth. In 41, Hellinger produced High Sierra, the Houston co-written and Walsh-directed sympathetic gangster epic that set Bogart up for the Maltese Falcon in the same year. Hellinger appeared at Warner's at the turning point of the gangster picture, finding pathos outside of social realism and social justice. Not only were audiences supposed to be wary of the gangster life, but now they were to feel sorry for them as well. The morally ambiguous yet sympathetic protagonist, an essential ingredient in film noir. Hellinger would leave Warner Brothers, producing two pictures with 20th Century Fox. When the war broke out, Hellinger's bid to service was refused. He was stamped 4F for a congenital heart condition, but was able to serve his country as a war correspondent. He did some studio work towards the end of the war, the musical review Thank Your Lucky Stars and Made Between Two Worlds. These reestablished Hellinger with the Broadway crowd. After his stint at Fox, Hellinger came over to Universal. In 1946, he saw talent in another New York boy, the East Harlem-born former circus acrobat turned actor Burt Lancaster. Though he grew up tough on the mean streets of New York, Lancaster had tried theater in his youth, and while he admitted enjoying it, he couldn't help but find it sissified, his own words. And yet, after the war, here he was acting. Was Lancaster's change of heart inspired by ultra-masculine figures like Hellinger, Walsh, Edward G. Robinson, George Raft, and Bogey? Maybe not all acting roles were soft. It's hard to say. But when Hellinger offered him the role of the Swede in The Killers, Lancaster said yes, and Noir had a new hero. Born in 1913, Lancaster was approaching his mid-30s in 1946, but his rugged good looks and fit upper body was a success with female audiences, as was his tough demeanor with the men. Hillinger liked what he saw of Siodmak's output during the war and after, and he hired Siodmak to direct the killers. Hellinger would go on to work with Lancaster further in the prison breakout 
film Brute Force, directed by Jules Dassin, a filmmaker Hellinger would work with again with The Naked City, his last film. Yes, he ultimately did not produce Crisscross, but in a way he did. Before he died of a sudden stroke in late 1947, Hellinger had secured the rights to Don Tracy's 1933 racetrack heist Gone Wrong, Crisscross. With these novel rights, his now loyal retainer, Lancaster, was secured to the picture. They had the basis for a story, but Hellinger's passing put the film on ice, at least for a little while. A lesser-known producer, Michael Crake, was slotted in the late Hellinger's place, a choice that satisfied Universal. Daniel Fuchs adapted the novel to the screen. He was relatively green as a screenwriter, but would show his colors here more than enough to allow him to pen Panic in the Streets for Elia Kazan and the Doris Day James Cagney 1955 musical Love Me or Leave Me. Meanwhile, Siad Mack had just directed some second unit work for Cry of the City when a still alive Hellinger and Universal hired him to direct Crisscross, reuniting Siadamak with Burt Lancaster on their first film together since Lancaster's debut in The Killers. With Siadamak and Lancaster attached to the film before his untimely death, adding to that his role in the proliferation of film noir from its inception to its peak, Hellinger, though dead, was the heart behind Crisscross. Crakey was the fish in suit that would see it done. Doubtless his suit was not nearly as smart as Hellinger's. R.I.P. Mark Hellinger. One of the notable changes from book to screen in Fuchs' treatment was the action was changed from a racetrack robbery to an armored car robbery. Lancaster would play armored car security officer Steve Thompson. Opposite him was Anna, the movie's femme fatale played by Yvonne DiCarlo. Here are some interesting things I learned about Yvonne DiCarlo, an actress I only associated with the Munsters TV series in the 60s and her famous role as Moses' wife Sephora in The Ten Commandments. DiCarlo's real name was Margaret Yvonne Middleton, and she was born in September 1922 in Vancouver, British Columbia. That's Canada for those of you playing the home game. So another something to add to my Canadian pride. Thanks to her stage mom, she was dancing by the age of three and by the early 1940s was living in Hollywood with said mother. In 1946, she was discovered by producer Walter Wenger. He cast DiCarlo, her stage name, in Salome, where she danced. Her breakout role, it was a huge hit, and she was an instant star because of it. Universal happily offered a five-year contract, which she accepted. Combining her acting and dancing, she would star in similar roles before cast as a working-class femme fatale in Crisscross, with one exception, Brute Force in 1947, produced by none other than Mark Hellinger. So while Crisscross would not reunite her with Mark Hellinger, it would put her opposite to Burt Lancaster once again. Filling the role of Anna's husband and Steve Thompson's romantic rival, not to mention ruthless gangster, was a no-brainer when it came to casting. Dan Duryea had a reputation for playing sleazy, abusive bastards. In back-to-back Fritz Lang vehicles, The Woman in the Window, and Scarlet Street, both opposite to Joan Bennett, who was Walter Wanger's wife, uh, he played an extortionist and a pimp. Both films featured Edward G. Robinson as a morally compromised protagonist. Duryea, tall and spindly, could go from handsome to punchable on a dime, would build a career out of playing these types. It became almost a sick joke about how often a Duryea character would slap female characters on screen. But like Richard Widmark, Duryea was a true family man, a model citizen in real life who gave to his community. I'll be taking on Lang's Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street sometime on this podcast, so we will put Duryea's career aside for now just to say that he was well cast for the role of Slim Dundee. 
and crisscross Drea is no longer a bottom feeder type hood. He has reached his zenith of criminality here as a crime boss. Gone are his boater hats, now he has shinier duds and a more sophisticated air. That said, his malevolent presence looms over the entire picture, a figure of violence and retribution all at once. Rounding out the cast are Stephen McNally as Lieutenant Pete Ramirez, band leader Issa Morales as the nightclub's band leader, and Alan Napier as Finchley, Griff Barnett as Pop, Percy Helton as Frank the bartender, and an uncredited Tony Curtis as DiCarlo slash Anna's dance partner in one of his earliest film roles. The cinematography of Criss Cross comes courtesy of Franz Planner, who would later lens The Big Country for William Wyler and Breakfast at Tiffany's for Blake Edwards. Planner has started out as a portrait painter in what was then Austria-Hungary, but found photography more satisfying, which in turn led him to film. He left Austria in 1937 for Hollywood, and including Criss Cross, provided DOP work for 130-plus films. He had not worked with Siodmak prior to Criss Cross, but that was a minor hurdle to overcome, given Siodmak's congeniality on the set. Siodmak differed from his controlling peers, Curtis Preminger, and others in the way he ran his film sets. He loved working with actors, and they loved working with him. Here was a filmmaker who was called in to save struggling over-budget films, someone who in all circumstances would require the most corrupting amount of control over production to get things done, who could have easily been a tyrant, yet was beloved by cast and crew. He even calmed the ruffled feathers of Burt Lancaster, who disliked how Hellinger's adaptation of Criss Cross was dropping the racetrack heist for a doomed love triangle. Here was a man who treated everyone with respect and received it in return. Like all directors of film noir, he had a keen eye and a distinct visual style when it came to black and white cinematography. He had a knack for portraying urban landscapes, lighting them for dramatic effect. He did come from this school of German expressionism, after all. So he could make this ominous, yet still elegant, to paraphrase Eddie Muller's rundown of Siodemak's style in his book Dark City. Planer and Siodemak got along beautifully. Editing fell to Ted J. Kent, who cut over 150 films throughout his career for Universal, most notably the horror classics The Invisible Man, Bride of Frankenstein, and The Wolfman. He was a good fit for Siodemak, who directed the 1943 horror film Son of Dracula. Some other classics finished by Kent, uh, the late career Cary Grant classics Father Goose and A Touch of Mink. Very talented crew. While the interior of the nightclub haunted the main characters as well as the attached bar section was shot on a soundstage, the same for the other interiors in the film, each decorated with the right amount of realism and logic, the production took to filming in downtown Los Angeles, Siodemak again giving more authenticity to the production. The aerial opening shot ending at the nightclub just north of downtown. Steve Thompson's mother's house on Hill Street is located near the Hill Street Tunnel and Temple Street, a section of Bunker Hill. The interior and exteriors of the dilapidated apartment where Dundee, Steve & Co. planned the heist is in fact the ins and outs of the Sunshine Apartment located on the 3rd Street steps. No surprise as this area of Bunker Hill, oft described by Raymond Chandler, was beloved of directors of film noir. Sad to say, all of these locations were torn down as of 1960. Additionally, the interior and exterior of Union Station on Alameda was shot on location as well. For post-production, the editing of Criss Cross was left to Ted Kent. The music was composed by the great Miklas Rosa. Next to John Williams, Jerry Goldsmith, Hans Zimmer, Eric Wolfgang Korngold, and Basil Polidurus, Rosa is one of my favorite film composers. 
Here is a man who learned to play violin at the age of five after receiving one as a gift. Hungarian born to a Jewish industrialist in Budapest, 1907, his mother was a classically trained pianist who studied as a pupil of Liszt. Growing up, he loved Hungarian folk music, playing it on violin and piano with his family. He adored Bartok and Kordali. Hungarian composers all. He found the regime at the Franz Liszt Academy in Budapest repressive and went off to study at the University of Leipzig in Germany and transferred to the Leipzig Conservatory only after a year. Under Hermann Grabner, he studied composition. Under Karl Strobe, he studied choral music at the Tomikskursk, where Bach himself had taught. Despite his fervent Hungarian nationalism, he developed a big respect for the German musical tradition. Eventually, he found himself in Paris, composing chamber music, where his friend Arthur Hunniger told him he could make money on the side, as Honegger did, writing film music. Honegger had written the score for the 1934 adaptation of Les Miserables. Rosa was impressed with the potential, both monetarily and artistically. He could find no opportunities in Paris. So he took off to London and met fellow Hungarian Alexander Korda, a big-time producer in Britain. Under Korda, he scored A Night Without Armor and Thunder in the City. Under Korda's London Films production company, he scored the epic Four Feathers and Thief of Baghdad. Thief of Baghdad got him his first Oscar nomination. This is because World War II started and Korda took his production team over to Hollywood. And of course, Rosa followed. Under Korda in the U.S., he scored Lydia, That Hamilton Woman, and most famously, The Jungle Book. His suite for The Jungle Book film became what was essentially the first recorded film soundtrack for public use. It was produced on a 78 RPM record. Opportunities soon opened up for Rosa. Outside of Korda, he collaborated with Billy Wilder, working for him on Five Graves to Cairo and famously Double Indemnity. With that composition, Rosa became entwined with the world of film noir. He is mostly known in terms of popular culture as a composer of the big epics like Ben-Hur and El Cid, but his contribution to film noir has been iconic to the movement. Double Indemnity with Wilder, Spellbound for Hitchcock, even though it's not really a film noir, but same difference. And then you have, of course, his score with Siodmak, his first score with Siodmak, The Killers, of which its motif was taken by the producers of the Dragnet radio and television series. Rosa will later sue the producers of Dragnet. Dun, 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 dun. He would also score Hellinger's other production, Brute Force, which again featured crisscross players Lancaster and DiCarlo. But with Siodmak hired for Criss Cross in 1949, Rosa was more than happy to apply his talents and give Criss Cross an ominous score to reinforce its morally ambiguous, fatalist atmosphere. Rosa would continue to provide the soundtrack of noir with John Huston's heist opus The Asphalt Jungle. Around that time that noir was peaking and the age of the studio epic was at hand, Rosa would deliver some stirring music of, to the great Bible epics of the 1950s. Shot in well-lit studios, shot on location, yet still atmospherically noir. People with an exciting cast of players who could play these roles to the manner born. With a director who could subordinate every cast and crew member to his vision, Criss Cross was bound for success. But that recognition would take a long time coming. So now we come to the plot summary portion of the episode. Remember, if you haven't seen Criss Cross and wish to avoid spoilers, pause this episode right now and watch the movie then come back and relive the movie through my summary, and then hang around for the review. Shout Entertainment has a North American Blu-ray release of Criss Cross that's available online via Amazon if you're searching for a copy. Uh, Eureka has, a re has released a Blu-ray edition in the UK. For my sources outside of Wikipedia, you can learn more about Criss Cross and other new wires from Eddie Muller's Dark City and Mark Vieira's Into the Dark. Capiche?
good. If you've already seen the film or don't plan to, then you have been warned. There'll be spoilers beyond this point. Steve Thompson was a good guy. He was a good brother and a good son, or at least he tried to be. If only he had never met Anna, but he did. In this not-so-linear narrative, the film begins with star-crossed lovers, quote-unquote, Steve and Anna canoodling in the parking lot of the only nightclub on this side of Los Angeles. Promises and plans are made. Whatever happens, they are going to end up together. That sense of noir fatalism has been established. Tension is delivered when Anna returns to the club and is interrogated by the evil tall drink of water that is her husband, Slim Dundee. He is suspicious of something, especially when he sees Steve enter the club via the bar. On the way in, Steve is confronted by his friend, Pete Ramirez, who is also happens to be Lieutenant Pete Ramirez, a plainclothes man of the LAPD. He tells Steve to let Dundee and Anna go. Steve ignores this advice and ends up in a scuffle with Dundee. A knife is thrown to the ground, and Pete has a chance to take down Dundee, but Steve is on a rat and denies anything happened. With some coaching from his goons, Dundee agrees to smoke the peace pipe with Steve, putting aside his seething jealousy and possessiveness. They all need their heads in the game for tomorrow. What exactly happens tomorrow? Words are thrown around about dough and truck and six figures. All Slim wants from Steve is to get rid of a third man. Next day, Steve is at Horton Security, an armored car company. He and three others are set to take a delivery via armored truck. There's Steve, an older man named Pop, and Bailey, the driver. A phone call comes through. It's for Bailey. His wife is ill. He has to go. Steve is now the driver with Pop in the back. Pop is sussed about the situation, but Steve reassures him everything is okay. As Steve drives and lost in his own thoughts, a first-person narration kicks in, sending us back in time. Steve is telling us it's eight months ago. He's been on the odd job for the past year, emphasizing that it wasn't for her that he returned. That her is obviously Anna, his ex-wife. They were married seven months, and then it ended, and he left, and now he's back. The slow-motion car crash begins here. Despite this intended resolve, he ends up at the nightclub we saw in the opening, The Old Haunt. He asks the bartender if the old gang is still around. We are reintroduced to the female Lush and bartender Frank that we met briefly in the opening, but this is all for introductory purposes until Pete Ramirez shows up at the bar, catching word that he's back in town. Pete asks him if he's back for Anna. Steve says no. Ramirez drives Steve straight back home to his mother's place just in time for dinner. We meet his mother, clearly widowed, his younger brother Slade, and Slade's fiancée Helen. Also at the table, symbolically placed as a father figure, is Pop, his work colleague from the opening. They suggest an outing together. Movies, bowling, ice skating. But Steve says he just wants to relax in utter denial about Anna. But Steve does go out, back to the club. In the mass of salsa dancing, he spots Anna feverishly moving to the music. He watches her feverishly. She spots him and lures him out of the dance floor to a table where they politely converse. Slim, Dun Slim Dundee shows up. Anna says he is just a friend. Yeah, sure. Pop follows through on the dinner talk the night before and gets Steve his job back at Horton's security. The Chekhov's gun is hung on the wall when discussion of the impossibility of armored car robberies is brought up as well as the seeds of Bailey indulging his wife, not to mention how certain Pop is that Steve is done with Anna. Speaking of Anna, now back in the picture, she calls Steve from the drugstore near his house. She tells him Slim is just a suitor and she wants to get back together. Steve is reluctant to repair the connection. She takes it harshly and walks away to pay the bill. Steve tells her to stay away from Slim Dundee and asks her out. 
His mother immediately picks up on what is going on, but he is stubborn and defiant. She tells him she spoke to Pete Ramirez about Anna, but he is adamant to pursue the relationship. Unfortunately, the relationship is not going to go in the way he anticipated. Steve arrives at the bar, looking for Anna, who is to meet him there. Frank, the bartender, tells him the table reservation is gone. As it turns out, Anna went to Yuma and married Slim Dundee. Now he is officially done with her. It was a lucky break. He can move on. But fate is fate. He later spots her at Union Station, boarding a train with Slim. But she doesn't go with them. At a reunion at the crosswalk, she tells Steve she was just seeing him off. Vincent, Slim's right-hand man, tells her she has to take a cab because he needs to drive the car to Vegas before Slim gets there. Steve watches her walk away to the edge of the street, where she will hail a cab. The scene fades to black, and his chivalry slash lust slash obsession, whatever you call it, finds him at her house with her playing the piano. Things get heated when she reveals that Pete Ramirez threatened to throw her in jail if she didn't stay away from Steve. She tells Steve that Slim has always been after her since he left, and now she is trapped with him and his violent personality. Her back is covered in bruises. He is back to square one. Steve drowns his trouble in liquor, hanging out with the, the lush at Frank's bar in the club. When he starts sitting getting surly, Frank calls Ramirez, who shows up. This enrages Steve further, and he swings a drunken haymaker and hits air as he collapses. Steve gets him to admit to running Anna in if she didn't leave Steve alone. But Ramirez is unapologetic. He tells her to stay away from Anna. She's a bad one. And Slim Dundee is going to mess him up if he finds out Steve has been making time with his wife. Presumably, the affair continues up to a point where Anna is parked across the street, waiting for Mrs. Thompson to leave the house. When the coast is clear, Anna rushes into the house to tell him that Slim is coming back from Las Vegas. What she doesn't realize is that one of Slim's goons is playing ball with the Thompson dog outside. This allows Slim and his men to set themselves up in the Thompson living room, already helping themselves to beers in the fridge. Danger looms as Slim begins to lay out his suspicions about the affair, but Steve is quick and says he wanted to speak to Slim and Anna was his way in. Anna plays along. Steve calls a spade a spade. Slim is the only crook he knows, and he has a job for him. But no one can rob an armored car, says Slim. It can't be done. Yes, it can, says Steve, if you have an inside man. A heist mastermind, Finchley, is recruited by Walt the Goon and brought to the apartment Slim has rented out to plan the heist. Finchley is skeptical, but is persuaded when he learns Steve will be the driver of the car. They spend the evening planning out the heist. Slim's alibi for the heist is that he is going to be on his way to Detroit. The plan is to hold a big send-off party before he leaves. Anna admonishes Steve for getting involved in this caper. Steve reminds her when this is all said and done to meet at the cottage in Palos Verdes. Steve tries to control the situation, suggesting that Anna will handle the money and not to shoot Pop. We are now full circle. With Steve driving the armored truck towards a chemical company where the heist will go down, everything discussed at the meeting is laid out before us to pick up as the enterprise is underway. The armored truck pulls into the target area. Pops and Steve take a sack of money each from the car, and then a timed explosion. Smoke is everywhere. Pop is accosted by Slim's men, but fights back, firing at the thieves until he is knocked down. He tries to get back up. Tough old fellow, that's for sure. But Slim appears from the smoke, a monstrous figure with a gas mask, and guns pop down callously. Steve witnesses this and goes for Dundee. The two men fight furiously. Steve is shot in the left shoulder, but he wings Dundee in the leg, who slips away with half the payroll. Steve falls unconscious. He awakes with his left arm in traction to his mother, brother, and future sister-in-law. They reluctantly confirm that Pop is dead, but remind him, as does a newspaper, that he is a hero who saved half the payroll. They leave and in comes Ramirez. He knows. Groggy but defiant, Steve doesn't confess. Ramirez is despondent angry at himself for failing Steve as a friend. 
He warns Steve that Slim will come for him, especially if Anna has the money and is waiting for him to get out of the hospital so they can run away together. After Ramirez leaves, the nurse on duty enters, ready to give him his drugs before she leaves for the night. Slim notices via the mirror a man sitting out in the hall. He asks the nurse to call the gentleman in. He looks harmless enough. His wife was injured in a car accident, and here he is, monitoring her condition. Steve is comforted by this and asks the man, Nelson, to sit in his room and watch the door. Mr. Nelson agrees, and when the nurse is gone and some time passes, leaves the room and pushes a wheelchair into the room. He awakens Steve and tells him that Slim wants to see him. Slim wants to know where the money is and where Anna is. The removal of his arm from traction is so painful that Steve passes out. Steve awakens in the backseat of Nelson's car. It's nighttime on some darkly lit road and he is being taken to Slim. Steve confirms that Anna has the money and that he will give Nelson ten grand if he drives him to where he wants to go. The destination is a cottage by the ocean, Palos Verdes. Anna is there. Nelson is paid off and leaves. Steve explains to Anna that Slim sent Nelson to pick him up and he bribed Nelson to take him back. Anna loses it, terrified that Nelson will tell Slim where they are. Steve shushes her and confident that Ramirez will nab Slim if he shows up. In a near breakdown, she tells Steve unapologetically that she was all but ready to leave on her own with the money. She thought he would be hospitalized for weeks, but now things are worse because Slim will find her now. Steve is poleaxed with the horrible realization that she used him all along to get the money, to get away from Slim and Steve himself. With the money locked up in a suitcase, she walks out, presumably out of his life, but headlights shine through the open door of the cottage and upon Steve. Anna screams, rushing back into the room, staring out at the darkness beyond the open door. Slim Dundee emerges from the shadows, a cane in one hand and a revolver in the other. You want out, Thompson. She's all yours now. Anna screams, stands over Thompson on the couch, but Slim raises his revolver. Hold her. Hold her tight. He coos almost sympathetically and empties the revolver into Steve and Anna. With tendrils of gun smoke whisping around him demonically, Slim turns around slowly to walk out the door, only to be confronted by the arrival of the police. The screen fades to black, but not before the final frame of Anna toppled over onto Steve's lifeless body is delivered to us. Steve Thompson was a good guy. If only he didn't meet Anna. But he did. Alright, now it's time for the LTP Noir Review. I review films on this podcast in three categories, each rated out of five points for a total of 15. The first category is story, the second category is acting, and the third category is atmosphere. Let's see if Criss Cross is worthy of its current critical renaissance. So, story. Thematically, the narrative of Criss Cross relies on key noir ingredients, the morally compromised protagonist, the them fatale, the inability to forget the past, and a strong sense of fatalism. At the time, the presence of these tropes might have been too formulaic for the discerning film critic and filmgoer, factors that prevented it from being popular in its day. It was something they had seen before. But in the postmodern world, where even amateur film scholars like myself have access to archives and media from this past century, we are able to get the key to the proverbial chocolate factory to see how things get made. We like seeing patterns and structures, and boy, do we love nostalgia. So what was cliché in 1949 can be seen as a perfect specimen in 2023. 
However, when it comes to engaging with older films, it is important to remember that it's a product of its time, at least to me anyway, or to anyone who wishes to study or simply appreciate cinema from yesteryear. Anyway, I mentioned the key ingredients of film noir just a few moments ago, and Criss Cross has these attributes in spades. But what makes it such a strong narrative to me is its persistence on the theme of fatalism. First, the structure of the film. The opening sequence at the nightclub the day before, the robbery on the following morning when Steve Thompson drives out the security company garage in their armored car. Then we have his musings behind the wheel bring us to six months before. Then we have the return to the present when Steve wakes up in the hospital bed and every action from that point on leading him to the cottage where he meets betrayal and death. Even on a meta level, Steve Thompson is trapped between his past and his present, with no future in sight. Siodimac delivers this notion visually in the overhead aerial shot in the opening credits, taking us over the L.A. sprawl and ending on the nightclub, zooming in and then cutting to the parking lot on the ground where Anna makes her speech about how they're going to get away, that they are both going to make it. It's almost a declaration of hubris from the co-star of the film noir, a character that turns out to be the femme fatale his friends and family warned him about. We see hints of Slim's jealous, violent nature and his suspicions towards Steve and Anna. We see Steve's stubbornness and refusing the helping hand Pete Ramirez gives him when he asks Steve to testify about the knife that was in Slim's hand. The opening aerial shot, fate zeroing in on Steve Thompson, matching with the overhead shot of the armored car leaving the garage, trapped between the two walls before it enters a thoroughfare, cut to the end of the elongated flashback sequence of what is essentially the second act, the armored car shot again from above as it enters and narrows between two buildings before hitting the open area where the robbery will take place. Consider Steve trapped in his own hospital bed, his arm in traction and paranoid that Slim is going to get him there. He is then accosted from the hospital, a symbolic place of safety, to the backseat of Nelson's car, and then to the confines of the tiny cottage where he surprises Anna, who is there with the money and not at all expecting him. He dies in that cottage with the realization that Anna betrayed him. He makes no fight. We don't need to see the shock and fear on his face. Anna runs into the cottage, yelling his name, but then we see only the perspective as Slim emerges from the darkness, ethereal like a grim reaper or Charon on his ferry across the sticks. Wherever Steve goes, he is pulled towards his destruction. Lots of seeds planted, lots of Chekhov's guns. I love how the characterizations push the story, the melodrama, and the twists and turns. Everybody has a part to play. It's predestination, but everyone thinks they are in control, despite reality saying otherwise. Pete threatens Anna to stay away from Steve, but Steve runs into her anyway after the wedding with Slim. It forces Pete to push him away for threatening to throw Anna in jail. Pop tells his colleague at Horton's that Steve is done with Anna. Steve tells Pop not to worry when Pop is clearly caught on. That something is wrong. And the setup at the heist planning, when Steve tells Slim not to harm Pop, well, Pop dies. The opening setup, followed by the past six months, narrated as Steve's stream of consciousness up until the post-heist where he wakes up in the hospital and the narration is gone. This is where he gets a dose of reality. We are no longer seeing the story through his perspective, yet we have subtle hints that he is reading the room wrong on many occasions with Anna. The writing and the editing play to this theme of fatalism. Steve in denial about his need for Anna. Pete knows it, his family knows it, but he won't admit it only in his thoughts during the narration. His spotting her in the nightclub, immediately having cut from Steve, adamantly stating to his family that he does not want to go out, he just wants to stay and read the paper, and yet cut to him immediately at the nightclub, spotting Anna, telling us in the narration that he doesn't care, that he was over her. Or at the drugstore where she has lured him to, telling him she wants to try again, but he is jaded and refuses until she walks away. He catches up to her and tells her not to be with Slim, asking her out. Then when he runs into her after she's married at the train station, they park coldly on the crosswalk. 
She walks in front of him shortly after in the distance, having been told to get a cab by one of Dundee's men. His back is in the foreground and she's in the background preparing to hail a cab or waiting for him to do something. The scene then cuts immediately to them together at the house. Fate. Saving DiCarlo's performance for the other category, I understand that Anna is somewhat of an enigma because we only see her through Steve's eyes and it's not too much of a shock that Anna betrayed him because the writing has subtle hints all the way through that she's bad news. But Steve takes no heed to these warnings and that's fine. But the way we see Anna pre-heist and pre-the time of the opening sequence, there may just be too much ambiguity on whether she is rolling with the punches or that she set up Steve all along. So we see her play along in the Thompson living room, because survival, but at the old apartment with Finchley and the planning of the operation, she admonishes Steve, I could cry, etc., etc., for getting involved with Slim and how invested Steve is in with the heist. Was that the moment of betrayal? Did he fall in her eyes because of that? Or did his injuries in the hospital force her to flee with the money because of fear or rep of reprisal from Slim? The film is not 100% clear on whether her betrayal is a desperate act of, survivor, of survival or a callous confession of conning the hero all along, but that's just it. Anna is inscrutable to us because we see things through Steve's point of view, so when that betrayal comes, we are in the same emotional nightmare that Steve is in now at the end of the film shock and disbelief and confusion all at once. Narrative interweaves with characters so beautifully that Slim's Reaper-like figure coming through the doorway in a white shirt amidst the darkness is almost spectral, delivering the justice of the gods to Steve and Anna's hubris. I'm giving a full five out of five marks for the story category. Uh, this yarn entrapped me just like it did Steve Thompson. As for acting... Lancaster has some stilted delivery, one or two cheesy lines with the family dog, and with Anna, not to mention a few cliches in his narration, but he's confident in his presence. Here's a man who's trying to be a tough guy, who believes he's a fighter, but conveys his boyish naivete so well that you feel the conflict in the character. Lancaster is wooden on occasion, but for the majority, he acquits himself well in the role. Despite the slight enigmatic motivations of her character, Yvonne DiCarlo delivers a fine performance here. She knows how to push Steve and Lancaster's buttons, and the two have good chemistry. DiCarlo plays her with a steel spine, a survivor mixing anxiety and anger quite well in her expressions. She is not an over-the-top femme fatale. You understand her motivations to an extent, and its absence of cliched sadism or cruelty, which is customary for the femme fatale role. There's a believable sympathy to Anna, a girl from the wrong side of the tracks who is a survivor, and when the chips begin to fall, when she is circling rock bottom, survival mode kicks in, and she looks after number one, in the end, herself. It's not my problem if people can't look after themselves. So says Anna. Dan Duryea, as I said, knows how to play gangsters. He can switch from a cool, cynical, dapper gangster to an abruptly violent persona with a snap of his fingers. He stands rigid, hair slicked back, always composed. His height and lanky demeanor give him a fearsome physicality on screen, opposite to Lancaster's fuller, beefier form. He is a center of attention with every scene he is in. Duryea exhibits the anger jealously boiling under that nice suit and that sophisticated yet tainted with corruption air. He is a powder keg about to explode, but when he does erupt, it's an explosion of ice, not fire. The bitterly detached, almost melancholic, wistful way he dispatches Steve and Anna to the point where it feels like grief and relief all at once as he walks out the door at the end, to his own end, is masterfully performed by Duryea. Stephen McNally is very convincing as Pete Ramirez. You buy that he is a good man at heart, maybe a little corrupted and self-righteous as a detective, but it's those flaws that allow Steve to push him away. 
As an audience member, we sympathize with his position, but we understand that he is going about it the wrong way, and McNally portrays that very well. The rest of the supporting cast all do more than serviceable work, lending gravity to the narrative as people who are influential in Steve's life or demonstrate adequately how his choices affect them. Four out of five for acting. Atmosphere. Story and atmosphere are so entwined in crisscross. Siodemak, as I said earlier, really knows his German expressionism, but it's not just the use of light and shadow, it's the use of camera, low angles, high angles, dreamlike transitions, mise-en-scene, you name it. And last but not least, music. Siodemak brandishes all the tools of his trade to make the moviegoer not just watch crisscross, but experience it. That aerial shot in the opening credits, a god's eagle-eyed view of the mortal Steve and Anna who dared defy him. The shots of the armored car from the rooftops above, moving through that bottleneck to its ultimate fate. Steve is trapped, but Siodemak makes us feel it. The ominous motifs of string and brass used by Miklas Rosa in the opening credits and throughout the film. The nearly erotic fevered dance between Anna's DiCarlo and Tony Curtis's Gigolo as Essie Morales' in-world band plays on heatedly. The dim lighting in Anna's apartment when she tells Steve about how Slim treats her. Lots of shadows creating ambiguity in terms of if we genuinely believe that she needs him. And filming on location on Bunker Hill and its environs gives the picture a touch of authenticity despite Siodemak and Planer's painting, even the day shots with a tinge of murky shadow. From the opening aerial shot that plummets us down to the world in which Steve Thompson inhabits to the final fade to black as Slim disappears into the darkness, leaving the dead lovers behind, Crisscross is a stark, gritty, sometimes dreamy, black and white feast for the eyes. Atmosphere, like story, I give full marks, five out of five. So, adding up the three categories, each out of five points, Crisscross was very close to perfection for me resting its laurels with 14 out of 15 points. And that's a wrap for Criss Cross. But I assure you the likes of Mark Hellinger, Burt Lancaster, and Robert C. Automack will return on another Lighting the Pipes noir edition. This is a beautiful film, in my opinion. It was definitely hyped up for me before I saw it, thanks to its recent appreciation in the film noir community. But all the elements in this film just worked for me. If you haven't seen it, please do. And check out C. Automack's other works like The Phantom Lady and The Killers. There are a few of his I haven't seen, like the 1943 horror film for Universal, Son of Dracula, which was written by his brother Kurt, uh, not to mention The Spiral Staircase and others. A formidable talent in film noir and film history in general, Robert C. Odmack, uh, is something else. And I have to say, I was impressed to see Yvonne DiCarlo outside of her exotic dancer role and, of course, as Lily Munster. She delivered a solid performance in Criss Cross, in my opinion, and it makes me want to see Brute Force, her first movie with Lancaster. If you like Dan Durier, check him out in Woman in the Window and Scarlet Street. Perfect creep in both those films. Not sure what the next film is going to be, but check out our other Lighting the Pipes content. On the main podcast, we recently released an episode on Erskine Shoulders, The Riddle of the Sands, a giant-sized episode, actually. And we have another novel review coming up soon. So check out all the Lighting the Pipes, including Noir, wherever you download your podcasts. Thank you for listening to this edition of LTP Noir. This is Josh Taylor. Signing off.